This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Mark Wunderlich, author of the poetry collection God of Nothingness. I think of poems as my attempt to make meaning out of experience. You know, I want I want experience to to mean something. I want what we what the lived life to have meaning, to not just be a kind of series of of events that happen to us as time passes. We'll be back with Mark Wunderlich in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. We are going through monumental changes as a society right now, and as I discussed in an episode earlier this year with the writer Claire Massoud, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. Whether this is your first time listening or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and organization more than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of the conversations that you've heard before and you're about to hear again on literary craft, content, and practice as well as the culture we inhabit. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Mark Wunderlich, who is a poet and teacher. He grew up in rural Wisconsin and studied German literature and English and went on to earn an MFA in poetry from Columbia University. 
He has written four collections of poetry, including The Anchorage, Voluntary Servitude, The Earth Avails, and God of Nothingness. His work has been translated into several languages, and his poems have appeared in many publications, including The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and The New York Times Magazine. Wonderlick is the recipient of several writing fellowships and awards. He currently teaches at Bennington College. His new collection, God of Nothingness, is a meditation on loss and identity and the salient moments that make us feel both alive and mortal. The poems reflect on Wonderlick's rural Wisconsin upbringing, his emergence as a gay man, the death of several of his mentors and family members, his travels through Europe, and more deeply into his own soul. God of Nothingness includes very intimate poems that capture Wonderlick's relationship to the natural world, the concept of inheritance, and the forward movement of life after death. We began the discussion with me sharing an observation about the poetry collection. You started off with this poem about your name, and so you're analyzing your name and you start very literal and then you get more metaphorical about who you are, but you're starting with this surface thing about, you know, something that's given to you. And as we move through the collection, we end with a deep autobiography of who you are and a real focus on the body and mortality. You know, the the book was written out of a, a period of time uh, when I experienced a series of, of profound losses. In 2018, eight people I was close to died uh, with, within the course of the year. And um, it, you know, it began with older relatives and uh, then uh, a close friend of mine committed suicide and um, a student of mine died. Both of my poetry mentors died within a couple months of each other. Um, and finally, uh, you know, at the, at the end of 2018, my father died after a long, long illness. And, uh, that was right when I, I turned 50 on December 30th and his funeral was the next day. It was one of those years where, you know, you, you just wonder what else is kind of coming, coming around the corner for you. And for me, I, I think of, poems as my attempt to make meaning out of experience. You know, I want, I want experience to, to mean something. I want what we, what the lived life to have meaning, to not just be a kind of series of, of events that happen to us as time passes. And for me, poetry has been the, the mechanism through which I've been able to, to fashion meaning, meaning from, from the experiences of the lived life. You know, the poem, the, the book begins with this kind of meditation uh, on on the meaning of my last name. And I have to say that that, you know, growing up, I, I hated my last name, um, although I did grow up in a in a kind of ethnic enclave with kids with last names like. Cockendorfer and Bublitz. So Wonderlich was not exactly, a, you know, a, wasn't an outlier in terms of ungainly names. But people have often asked me about the the meaning of the name, and and will say, you know, does it does it mean wonderful? It no, it actually doesn't. It's an adjective. Um, in in German, it's an adjective that means the things that I that I outline at the beginning of the poem. Um, about strangeness. It does mean queer. It means peculiar. 
Um, and so the more I, I began thinking about that name, I began to, um, you know, to, to want to kind of draw out those meanings and see how accurate the name might be in, in, in terms of, of myself. Um, as the, as the book progresses, um, you know, I do, uh, I, I, I wanted to think about the nature of, of autobiography and, and I had some questions about what, why poets seem to be drawn to the, you know, write about the worst things that have ever happened to them. You know, why is it that that is a subject? Um, why is this sort of journey through traumatic experience um, the material from which we we render poems? Um, and and I think, too, we're in a moment um, in literature and poetry in particular where there is a real emphasis on on, um, you know, on on trauma, on identity, uh, on what has what sort of external forces have have made us. You know, we think of sort of meditations on on uh, poverty or meditations on racism or homophobia, things like that, as being these sources um, of of poems. But I find myself very resistant to ideas about um, traumatic experience as being definitive, you know, as being the, the sort of marker of personal identity. I, I want to believe, of course, that we are made up of what we think and what we do and what we say, how we are in the world, you know, whom we love and what kind of changes we make in the world. Um, you know, it, it, an idea of, of selfhood that can be independent of the past. But of course, we also inherit things. We essentially inherit our bodies from our ancestors. We we uh, are born into the world under particular circumstances, be they social or economic, um, and and we then have to figure out how to make our way in the world given those factors. We are, you know, as as people in North America, we have access to certain things that people in other parts of the world may not have, but we are also limited by where where we are, and I think that. Americans are entering a moment where we're kind of reckoning with the things that we don't have access to. Um, and so I, I wanted that long poem that does kind of conclude or come toward the end of the book really is a meditation on ideas of, of identity and, and what, what we are made of. Um, and it thinks a little bit too about victimhood, about, about uh, you know, victimization and uh, and my own resistance to seeing myself as a victim of any kind, despite having been a victim of violence or you know or, or of other things. Um, and so um, you know, I think that the book as a whole really is in some ways looking looking back. It's attempting to um, you know find meaning in in loss to uh, make various losses uh, comprehensible and to, you know, to, to turn that into something that, that I can then understand. This, I don't really believe in poetry as a kind of therapeutic experience. I think that's a really reductive way of thinking about poems and what they're for. I think of 
poems as complex individual works of art. Um, but I also understand that the writing of this book did mean something to me and meant that I was able to take a period of my life and come to understand it in some way. So you look at those losses differently having written this book? Uh, absolutely. You know, that the poem has, I, I, when, when, we, when we're grieving, when someone dies, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a shocking experience. You know, one day someone is there, and the next day they aren't. And they're really nowhere to be found. It's, it's a, a kind of a, astonishing thing. And especially if you weren't there to sort of bear witness to the person's death, it's really just like receiving, you know, a, a, a news item. You just have to trust that the, the person is actually dead and that they're no longer in the world, that their bodies are no longer alive and, 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 and present. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a strange exercise of belief to have to come to understand that someone is no longer alive. Right. And, um, and so for me, uh, these poems became these kind of stand-ins for the person. They came to be sort of emblems that I could look at, that I could, that I could enter into. Um, for, for me to, to, to have those losses become understandable and for, for me to be able to, um, to, to place them within a context of, of my life. And you said that, that you were really thinking about why trauma or the worst parts of, of poets' lives end up in their poetry. And I'm wondering if putting some of these in this poetry made it so it might be something you won't write again or made you look differently or I don't know if you have a, a, con a, a conclusion to share with people about why that is like for people who read poetry and maybe come away and say, wow, that was really, really a sad book. Do you have any insight as to, to why? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, um, I had a, I had a friend recently, I recommended a book to a friend recently and he said, is it sad? You know, is the book sad? Because I, I don't know if I want to read a sad book right now. And I said, of course it's sad. It's a book, right? You know, I mean, that's what, that's what they are. You know, I think, I think in some ways somebody once said that all good music is sad music. Um, I don't really think, you know, in some ways I, I, I don't, um, I know that this book is so much of it is about these, these profound losses, but I, I also have to say, I don't really think of it as being a sad book, right? I, I think of it, you know, I think that the, it, Robert Frost comes to mind a, a little bit, right? He, he's, he's this poet who um, it, what's the most astonishing thing about Robert Frost is that he ha he was so popular in his lifetime and that people read that work because that work is incredibly dour. It is, it is very dark. It's very melancholy. It's also godless. It is also, you know, almost without hope. You know, he think he talks about, um, the best that you can hope for is to be like, a rotting woodpile in the woods that someone forgot, you know, all of this human effort going to vain as the wood, you know, this, this wood that someone cut and split and stacked up is, is neglected and rots away. 
Um, you know, but I think that for what I do take away from Frost that is hopeful is the actual poem itself. The act of writing the poem is a desire to connect with people, is a desire to have some presence in the world that, that endures, that is not about the person um, being present in front of you, but is this is this kind of proxy body that he can send out into the world to interact with the world and to and to engage with people. I think that you know people are drawn to poetry of difficult experience because um, you know of, of that 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 describes or, or renders difficult experience because we all go through, we all experience loss. We all have to contend with our own mortality. We all have to, we, we're all living in these bodies that are flawed, that, that get sick, that get old. And, uh, you know, and we experience pain in them. That is a unifying human experience. And that has been the human experience going all the way back to the very first human beings that existed in the world. We are connected to the world and to each other because we are in human bodies. And that's often a really difficult thing. That's often very difficult. It's really, it's hard to be in the world um, as, as we are. And I think that poetry that addresses some of those experiences, that thinks about mortality, that thinks about loss, that thinks about pain, um, it, you know, it does assist us in, in, uh, making those experiences comprehensible. And, and, and I think as readers, we get to, um, try out what it might be like to go through those things without actually having to do it ourselves. Um, you know, this is the, the, the other great magic trick I think of poetry is that it brings the dead back to life. When you pull a book off the shelf and you read someone who has, you know, passed away to the other side, um, you know, they are making, they are using our bodies as a kind of instrument to bring themselves back to life. If you breathe in air and you speak out one of their poems, in a way, you're kind of bringing that person back into the world. It's, it's an amazing, it's an, an amazing thing. I think that Whitman captures that experience um, in, you know, in crossing Brooklyn Ferry, where he's imagining himself there at the ferry terminal as people are streaming off the boat and, and coming toward him, he is imagining himself in the futures of watching the, the people of the future coming toward him as, as he sort of stands there and, and contemplates, contemplates the future. At one point in Leaves of Grass, you know, he says, there you are uh, holding me in your hands. I am there in front of you now. And it's one of these moments when you read that, you kind of want to drop the book because he has sort of rendered himself back into the world by speaking himself into being once again. And and so, I, you know, I think that readers are, are, for me, poetry sort of fills the space, the desire for a kind of religious experience, for a sort of transcendent experience, for um, a, a way in which we get to think of ourselves as 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 kind of eternal beings. Um, and and poetry really does help us to um, to understand our to understand our own human pain and to, and to see it as something, 
um, that that might have meaning that that might um, not just be, you know, that that we're not just sort of floating through the world, but that we are, um, but but that our our experience and our our place in this world um, is is important. So speaking of the religious experience, I wanted to talk about the title, The God of Nothingness. You have a poem called The God of Nothingness, but before that poem appears, you have a line of The God of Nothingness in what I think is my favorite poem of the collection. It's called First Chill. I'm wondering if that line came up in that poem and then you wrote the other poem, God of Nothingness, or if it was reversed. It was actually reversed. So um, the first time I, I came up with that phrase, I was writing. Um, it, it became the, the title of the of a poem um, called "The God of Nothingness," which is a, a poem that's about um, my. It's about my father, and uh, he um, had a brain tumor. Um, and the poem is is about this sort of period of time when he was started he started behaving strangely and he um, his mood changed he became almost uh, uh, mute you know he he almost he stopped speaking um, he also became kind of belligerent and refused to see a doctor um, you know, he, it was a, it was a very kind of strange period watching this, seeing this person, um, seeing his personality change. And in the, the, um, scene that is described in that poem is one where he, um, he, you know, he, he has gone out, uh, duck hunting. He's in a boat in a marsh and he falls, he loses his balance his balance had become very, very poor. And so he fell into the water. The water was not so deep that he was submerged, but he was there stuck in the water kind of up to his head. And, um, and he had a dog with him and the dog, you know, it was not one of those, you know, um, lassie, Timmy has fallen in the well, go, go get help moments. You know, the dog was totally <laughs> like ignored him and just sort of went off on his own. Um, and I, it, it, it seemed to me that that indifference, that kind of, um, you know, in, indifferent response of this animal seemed kind of telling to me that death. The, the sort of death that was coming for my my father in the form of this in the form of this illness was indeed incredibly indifferent, and um, and so I started it, it, it. I I got this image of of you know the the dog as a kind of indifferent god that was that uh, was you know presiding over 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 a, a, a human demise right and. Um, I, I, you know, that phrase just came, came to mind as I was reading, you know, as I was writing that poem and as I was sort of entered, entered into that poem and began composing it. And so it, it occurred to me again, as I was writing a, a sort of larger poem, I think about, uh, uh, some of these other, other losses. And I thought of that phrase again, of the, the God of nothingness. And, and it's really a sort of, you know, a, a metaphor for, for death, for the, um, obliterating forces that, that erase a life, um, you know, that, that 
make us make us forget someone once they're gone. And uh, and so it it occurred again. It came back in in another poem. So the beginning um, part one of this, I I found that the first part reminded me a lot of Grimm's fairy tales. It was like all these kind of characters that you wouldn't see. You had hunchbacks and people named Tiny and haunted houses and driftless sons and. Um, I'm wondering if you can comment on that. And, you know, they're all, uh, most of those, at least in the beginning, are seem to be a lot of characters from your childhood growing up in, in Wisconsin. Yeah. You know, it's, you're not, you're not the first person to, um, to, to, uh, to point this out. Uh, and yet, you know, what's so interesting to me is that, um, uh, that, that these are really, um, so many of these are just truly autobiographical poems, even though they they seem sort of mythic. I sometimes joke that my childhood in Wisconsin, in very rural Wisconsin, growing up on this on a farm, um, it it feels now more looking back that it was more like a a nineteenth century childhood than a twentieth century one. Um, you know that that um, I I grew up in in you know I'm I'm right at that age where you know, I grew up without the internet, but I also grew up in, in really kind of isolated circumstances in a lot of ways. There were no children anywhere near where I, I grew up. We'd have to go, you know, I saw kids at school, but otherwise it, you wouldn't run into one. There was no neighborhood to play with. It was just my brother and myself, you know, at, at home. Um, and so I spent, you know, so much of my childhood was really about um, being out in the in in the natural world about these interactions with animals, you know, my family, um, we had horses and dogs and livestock. We had, you know, we hunted. Um, I had a trap line where I trapped muskrats for money as a, as a kid. Um, you know, it, it it looking back on it now, it sounds like I'm I'm talking about Little House in the Prairie, but it's really life in rural America, in the in the you know, seventies. Um, and, uh, but it was also marked by real, real isolation. I think the, the kind of fairy tale quality that you, that you, that you note there, I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with, with Grimm's fairy tales and, and always have been. Um, uh, but a lot of these two are, are, are incorporate these stories that I, uh, that I grew up hearing as a, as a kid, you know, my family has lived in that part of Wisconsin. They, they, you know, first settlers kind of founded the town that I grew up in. There are generations of family dead buried in the town cemetery. You know, there's, we're, we're, I, I feel so deeply connected to that place, but I'm also losing, losing that place. When my father died, I also had to sell the the, um, what had been my grandfather's farm, which my father had held on to, and it was just un unmanageable. And so I had to sell this piece of property that had been in the family for a long time. And, and it felt like kind of a failure in some ways, you know, the, the family is also dying out. There's, there's my, my, um, brother doesn't have children and, and I don't either. We're really the end of the line. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it's marking the end of, of this family that lived 
in that region since the 1840s and 1850s when they first when they first showed up there. Um, you know, I, I, I think that um, I, I grew up hearing so many stories about the family, but there were also these characters, you know, the um, uh, who I, I, my, I was very close with my grandparents growing up. They lived nearby and um, and and they provided this sort of connection to a, a kind of deep past that felt very entwined with the region where I grew up with the town itself. Um, you know, and, and I guess I feel very fortunate to, to have a place that I, I, I feel this kind of connection to. It's a, it's a, a, a very rural corner of Wisconsin. It's a very beautiful part of the state. Um, it's in the driftless zone, which is, the uh, an area where the the last ice age did not the the last you know the as the glaciers kind of came down from the north they created a little teardrop area in this part of Wisconsin Minnesota Iowa right where they meet and they missed it right they missed that area so there are high bluffs valleys um, it's not the kind of flat prairie that you tend to think of um, when you think of the the plains or the or the midwestern states, it's it's um and it's there right on the Mississippi. It's a very evocative landscape, a kind of mysterious one, and um and and quite beautiful. And so I I feel this you know a, a, a real connection to to it. Um, but I also felt a kind of urgency to get some of these things down. To you know, uh, at, my father was ill for for quite a while. And the last year of his life, I, I spent a lot of time with him. Um, he had had brain cancer. He had had, uh, um, a number of strokes. He was not always lucid. Um, but he could remember and recall things. And I spent a lot of time asking him about his childhood and asking him to, to remember and, and recall things because I, I just wanted to hear them one more time. I wanted to hear those stories again and hear about um, these, these kind of characters who I remember growing up, um, hearing about when I was growing up and, and to, to, to try and preserve them or capture them in some way. You know, the, the, a tiny occurs in a couple of, the, of these poems and he was a, my grandfather's hired man and he was, um, he, he was, when I was little, he was a giant. He was six and a half feet tall. He was well over 300 pounds. I mean, the man was enormous and enormously strong. He was also, um, almost silent. He didn't, he didn't speak. Um, he was, uh, uh, developmentally disabled. Um, and he worked for my grandfather who was very small. My grandfather was I don't think he was five feet tall. He had also had a spinal deformity. So he, he shrank as he got older. And so the two of them together were these, this pair of this absolutely hulking man who was incredibly strong and who everyone called tiny, that was his nickname. And my grandfather, who was this incredibly small man. And the two of them, you know, uh, ran the farm and, you know, um, it, it was, it was like a kind of, as you say, a bit of like a living fairy tale, except of course, these are real people. These were real relatives who people I, I knew, um, 
I, I knew when I was growing up. And so I also have a kind of tenderness and affection for them. Um, and, uh, and, and I wanted to, you know, bring something of that kind of small town rural experience into these poems and, and, and capture it in some way. I think, uh, one of the things too, about growing up in that, in that place and growing up in a time, of course, before any, any real connection, you know, now, of course, the internet connection connects us with people all around the world. That's a, you know, so obvious it doesn't need saying, but, um, you know, when I was growing up, the, one of the things that really marked my childhood was, was its isolation. And, but the sense too, that I was, we were in a world without, without a connection to the, to, to sort of arts and culture. It's, it, it felt like an area, a place that, that, that art had forgotten in some ways that the, you know, there was, there were only, um, my connection to the outside world, you know, I, I, I remember, um, the, in the summer, the bookmobile would come once a month or, you know, like every two weeks. And I remember having it circled on the calendar because it was so important that we not miss that opportunity to be able to go there and to, and to check books out, you know, when, it, when the bookmobile came around. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that isolation, um, also I think has made me a very, self-sufficient person. I, you know, I don't think I've ever been, I've done boring things, but I don't think I've ever really been bored in my whole life. You know, I think I'm always like too sort of self-sufficient and preoccupied, um, that it would never occur to me to be bored. I, I, I think that, you know, if you grow up in circumstances that are not particularly stimulating, you find ways to be stimulated. And, um, I guess I also feel very lucky to have, you know, grown up with, um, with a kind of tie to agricultural cycles, to the natural cycles of the world, to, um, plants and animals, to, you know, weather, um, to the, the, the very, um, intricate and complex, um, systems that have, you know, determined human experience for, for, for ages. I guess I feel like if I had grown up in the suburbs or something, um, I, I might not, I might not have that. And I think that that is the continued source of my, of, of so much of my work, of my poems is kind of going back into that world and describing it and reconstructing it, um, putting it into language and, and really trying to, trying to remember it. I think, too, the juxtaposition between this sort of rural fairy tale land and um, being grounded in in the land and in your family and in the characters that surround you make it even more stark when you go later into your autobiography. And we learn about all these other things about you that you lived in Europe and um sometimes traded sex for money and had all these other different experiences in your life, which seems so far away from just life on the farm in Wisconsin without the internet. 
Yeah, I you know I think too. Um, I, I also have had a had a life as um, you know as a as a, a a queer person in the world, and um, and and I I also knew growing up that I needed to that that it became clear to me that there was no place in that world for me, you know, in the, in, in this hometown, I think I, I knew from an early age that I had to get out. Um, and, um, and so, and so I did. Um, but I, you know, I also, uh, found myself out in the world as a young, as a young person, as a young man. Um, and, uh, you know, and was, was vulnerable in, in, in a number of ways. Right. So, um, I went to Europe for the first time when I was, uh, 18 and, um, I had, you know, had a, uh, falling out with my family who had found out that I was gay and, um, and, you know, I, I became estranged from them for a period of time, kind of cut off from them. And so I was, you know, I had, I had gone to, um, I'd been an exchange student and briefly in, in high school, um, and had, you know, gotten to know a German family. And so later, uh, then when I was a little, that summer, I, I went to Germany and when the summer when I was 19, I went to Germany, um, because I had become estranged from my family. And so there I was kind of bumming, bumming around. I got a job. Um, I was working as a waiter. Um, but I was also, um, you know, kind of also vulnerable in, in certain ways. Um, that is another experience that really certainly has, has kind of shaped me. Um, the idea that in some ways that, you know, love, love actually is conditional, um, that, you know, you can be rejected. Um, and, and I think too, that this is a, uh, a, a kind of very often a sort of experience of, of what it is to be, to be queer in the world, to have this sort of rift with your family. Um, that's, that's the sort of sad version of it. On the other hand, I feel like I was liberated, um, as well, right? When you, um, I, I, I set off on my own in a lot of ways and, and I needed to become independent and I needed to learn how to, how to fend for myself, how to take care of myself, how to, um, you know, how, how, how to kind of preserve the integrity of my life. And I'm, I'm glad I was able to certainly able to do that and sort of emerge out the other side. Um, but you know, that, that is also, I think, an experience that, that many people have. One thing I've noted is, you know, I've seen friends of mine who, and, and they're mostly kind of straight friends who've, you know, maybe married or, you know, and had kids. And then later on in their lives, they've had to kind of declare their independence. They had, they were sort of living one version of a life that they were expected to, to, to have. And then they have to, um, they, they had to break something in order to, you know, to, to set themselves free. And I think, I guess, you know, I, I think a lot of queer people do that early on or are forced to do that early on, um, and to see themselves as, as independent and as people who, you know, that, that 
that you have to kind of find find your own way. You know, after I left Wisconsin and uh, and and spent some time, you know, spent some time in Europe, and um, then went went back to college um, and graduated. As soon as I graduated from college at the University of Wisconsin, I moved to New York City, and I moved there, you know, at, as soon as I could. And it was one of those things where I had, you know, I managed to save seven hundred dollars and buy a one way ticket to New York City and move there. And I thought I'll be fine. I have seven hundred dollars what could possibly go wrong you know and i was incredibly naive but i also just just did it i took that kind of leap and then i lived in urban places for a number of years i spent time in in new york city and eventually moved to los angeles i lived in san francisco for a time uh before moving back east and living on cape cod for for several years and then eventually finding my way here to the hudson valley so I, you know, but I, I did, I think it's a, a very kind of typical story, American story of being born in the provinces and then moving to the city, a kind of break with one's family, uh, uh, um, you know, sort of getting off the farm and going to the big city. Um, that's a, that's a very common story, but it's also very much a, a queer story of, of, you know, thinking about, um, that the city was the place where one got to have that life. That's where you had to go. That's where it was safer. That's where you could find others, who, other people who were like you. It's where you might find love. Um, and I did that. And I did that in a way because I, I, I felt like that was the only choice. What's interesting to me now is I find myself living in a small town um, once again, you know, now I'm back in rural America and, and that's where I'm living. And, um, and it's a much different experience. Um, I also had, uh, was invited back to, um, my hometown when, when my last book came out, I, I was asked to give a reading in, in my hometown. And, um, and I returned to, you know, to do this and, there was a, um, the local paper had ran a story, had called and interviewed me about, you know, coming back to my hometown to give a reading. And the cover, I, I, my father was still alive when this, when this happened and I came, came into the house and, you know, and, uh, the, the newspaper was sitting on the table and he said, you know, there's a, He's like, you made the front page. And he says, below the fold. And so, you know, and I looked at the, picked up the paper and looked at it. And there was the, you know, this article about me, but I, I turned, you know, turned it up so that I could see what the headline for that day was. And the headline was, um, 70 year old cactus thrives at area nursing home. That was the headline before like poet returns home to read. And I thought that was, you know, a kind of <laughs> a great kind of, um, declaration of this sort of, you know, the, the fate of poets <laughs> that an old cactus was the sort of better story. Um, but it was, it was a really interesting experience to kind of go back and to give this reading there because, I, you know, I, I thought there would be like three people in the audience and I showed up at the place and it was absolutely full with every, everyone who, you know, I had known as a kid, you know, my the, the like home economics teacher, my German teacher, um, you know, uh, 
people from my, my parents' church, um, the town doctor, you know, everyone was there at this reading to sort of hear, hear me read. And it was a kind of shocking experience because I thought, and people were enthusiastic and very warm and just delighted that one of their own had gone out into the world and done something, something that they could see and reflect on and where they saw themselves perhaps. And, you know, and, and so it was a, it felt like a very happy experience, but afterwards as I was reflecting on it, it started, I, you know, I, there was a, an aspect of it that really, that began to bother me a little bit, which was this, you know, I had been living with this idea that in some way I was in exile you know, that, that I had been kind of forced to leave this town and this place because I was queer, because, um, because I was going to live a, a kind of life that that place wasn't going to allow me to live openly and happily as, as I wanted to. And, um, and to return to a kind of embrace, um, you know, was, was sort of a shock to me. It was surprising that 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 was the case. And it, it meant that I had to kind of recalibrate and rethink, you know, what what I was vis-a-vis -vis my my place of of origin. Um, you know, I, I think that um, it was a very I'm, I'm so glad that I was able to have that experience um, and that I was able to kind of reconcile with the place in certain ways. That I and but I was also having done that. I was also seen for what I was. There was no. I wasn't hiding. I wasn't going to, um, you know, mask any part of my my identity in order to be in that world. And it turns out that I didn't have to anymore. That I had I had outgrown that, and that I was fully in myself. I was fully realized. Um, you know, at, at that moment, I, I, I think to queer experience, I think, you know, the, it is, is one that is, it, it's gay people in the United States, of course, are still incredibly vulnerable. Um, you know, we hear, uh, so much of this sort of going through this last election, um, it, it, it becomes when you start hearing that, you know, uh, various court cases uh, about whether uh, gay people can be discriminated against um, legally are, are being heard by the Supreme Court. You know, the current makeup of the Supreme Court doesn't really bode well for, um, you know, religious institutions are going to be allowed to discriminate against gay people. And those religious institutions could be a hospital. They could be, you know, a, a social service organization. Um, and, you know, there are still, um, there still is one of the things that gay marriage did, of course, is that it, it gave people the illusion that, you know, um, that, that, LGBTQ people have equal protection under the law, but of course we don't, you know, um, not by a long shot. And, um, you know, I think that, that, uh, same sex marriage created this sort of illusion. Um, but in reality, in many States, um, you can be fired for, 
of being queer. You can be evicted from an apartment. Um, you know, you can be in some places now you can be denied, um, service, um, you know, and it's perfectly legal to do that. Um, that's, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it's a bitter pill, of course, to, to have to see yourself, um, not just as a second class citizen, but as someone who does not have equal protection under the law, where you understand that if someone wanted to discriminate against you, they have the exact legal right to do that. And, you know, that's a, um, that's a reality. Um, that, that does mean that, you know, I am part of a population that is vulnerable. I, I think that there are many things that protect me from those vulnerabilities, um, that I'm male, that I'm white, that I'm middle-class, that I'm educated, all of those things act as kind of protections as hedges against those sort of things. You know, if I were the victim of some kind of discrimination like that, I would certainly fight back. And I would have access to the tools that would allow me to do that. Many, many other people don't have access to those same kind of tools. And, you know, um, and the other thing is that, you know, uh, queer people in, are always going to be a minority. We will always be a minority. We will always be a, a small fraction of the greater population. Therefore, we are, are also vulnerable. I think too, you know, I think that all of my books have taken up this idea of queer life and queer experience. And, um, and I think it's also important to, you know, I've, I've, I've wanted to kind of situate that life within rural contexts as well. Um, it's important, I think, to, to acknowledge that queer experience happens everywhere, that it isn't just in cities, that it is rural parts of the country as well. And, um, and, you know, and, but that's also a part of the totality of who I am. Um, it, it's, it, it's part of what I am. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, um, that a lot of these poems, um, you know, whether it's the overt subject or not, um, it's, it's there in, in all of them. In the last poem, which has different sections on the auto biographical impulse under on victimhood you have this one line the occasions of my life conspired to bring me here and that's kind of how I felt about the whole poetry collection was that you were you were mining your life and and choosing these concentrated morsels to share when you go to write the next collection do you go back to these or do you feel done or did they just swirl around in different forms? I think that there definitely are recurring. There are recurring stories that have happened in each of my books. You know, there are settings and places. So those things certainly recur. They're part of a kind of deep interior psychological landscape that I, that exists inside of me. And I think I return to that over and over again. But I also think that each of my books has been quite different. They've, um, they've, they've taken up different subjects. They've had different organizing principles and they've been motivated by different impulses. Um, you know, in this, uh, poem that you're citing where you're, um, talking about that, where you, you quote the line that you quoted, it's a, it's a section of a long poem in which I, I recall, um, 
having been a, a, a victim of of an assault um, when I was living in San Francisco. Um, I was sexually assaulted by a man and beaten by him uh, as well. And it was, uh, you know, when when I um, talk about writing about traumatic experience that, you know, this this was a poem, this whole long poem was one in which I really wanted to think about, you know, I'm always imploring my students when I'm teaching them to make themselves vulnerable, that, you know, they need to take risks in their work. And that can often mean risking personal exposure. Um, uh, you know, it's a, and when we use autobiography in our poems, um, uh, it's, it's often about trying to access those places in which we, we, we do find ourselves to be, to be vulnerable. This is a very literal vulnerability that's being described here. It's about having been, um, the victim, the victim of a crime and, uh, but, but also, uh, trying to kind of reckon with my own, my own role in that, you know, um, what, what, you know, where, where was I in, in this configuration as that, as this was happening, it was an attempt to kind of rid myself of any lingering notions of shame around that event. And also to, to uh, kind of see what could art be made from that experience, you know, could I make something, something out of it? Um, and in making that, was I finally kind of putting, putting this event aside? I, I, I think that you know, if, if the question is whether I'm going to kind of revisit that subject again, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I, in a way, I, I, I hope not. I, I think that. I probably have sort of set it aside that I've moved through it and that I'm thinking about thinking about different things. Um, you know, thinking, uh, uh, I, I, you know, kind of recently I've, I've worked on a poem that's actually rather joyful. You know, that's, that is a, a sort of about, about, um, thinking about kind of happiness. Um, but the reason, you know, the reason happy poems aren't all that successful is that they all, they have to be, um, th their happiness, I think in literature is only interesting, uh, when it's, when it's juxtaposed against it's, it's up the opposing forces. It's that kind of negative capability that, that is kind of required of a poem where you have contradictory impulses or contradictory forces at play within a single poem. Um, and, and that creates tension, you know, um, poetry and, 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 uh, literary, you know, in any kind of literary structure, any sort of literary work of art has to have tension at its center. Um, it, you know, it, it has to contain that that's, that's the engine that, that keeps the, keeps it moving. Um, and you know, if you're writing about joy, there's also has to be that kind of cloud in the distance, I think, in order to, to give it texture and to make it meaningful. Well, maybe in the poem, as happy as you are, you'll never be as good as a cactus. <laughs> I know, I know that's right. There was, um, I, 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 I wrote a, a sort of essay about that experience some time ago, but you know, the poet Richard Howard on I taught at Columbia, of course, for many years on the first day of class, he used to tell people, 
he said, you know, calling yourself a famous poet is like saying you're a famous mushroom. And I've always sort of loved that, that, um, uh, you know, kind of realistic phrase that he has where he said, you know, don't that that's the wrong thing to kind of think about. And I was like, no, it's a it's like the cactus is more famous than the poet. It's like being the famous mushroom. So, um, yeah, that's that's something I sometimes remind myself of. I do really want to ask you about one more poem, which is my night with Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, yes. Is that like literally true? <laughs> it is. It is literally true. So um, it, it's about. It describes an encounter um, that uh, I I had when I was in Madison, Wisconsin, um, and uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, who, um, who when I was in college, it was revealed his 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 crimes came came to light and he was arrested. Um, but when I remember vividly the day that that news story broke and his picture showed up in the in the news because, um, you know, I was with with some friends and we all saw his face and we all recognized him. Um, that he had been to this, uh, a, a bar that we went to in, in Madison. Um, we, we, you know, had, he was someone who we, we recognized, we knew who he was. And I had this vague recollection. I remembered this night when this man had knocked over a beer, uh, that I had and bought me another one. And we had a brief conversation and, um, and it was Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, and so, you know, it, it uh, I remember telling the story to, um, Amy Hempel who teaches, uh, in, in the program I directed at Bennington and, um, and we were just having a conversation with kind of brushes with danger. And I sort of casually remembered this story about, you know, about Jeffrey Dahmer and she, she was sort of very wrapped in her attention. She's doing, she said, have you ever written about this? Have you ever recalled this? And I said, you know, no, I, I haven't. It seems kind of sensational. And I just, you know, I just haven't, haven't done it, but she really planted that seed. And, and I, I, you know, went, went back and, and, uh, and tried to kind of recollect it. And so the, poem is really an attempt to recall that, you know, to recall that experience, which I have to tell you at the time meant absolutely nothing, right? It was so small, so trivial, um, not the hint of danger. It was just this guy knocks over my beard. Now, whether that was on purpose or whether it was accidental, you know, who, who, who knows? And then, so he was, he, bought me a beer and chatted me up. Now I was, I was underage at that bar, but I was, you know, in like maybe 19 or 20. And, uh, and I wasn't, this guy was older. He was, you know, he was, he seemed old to me. He was maybe 30, you know, and I wasn't going to talk to him. I wasn't going to give him the time of day really. So there was no actual danger implied there. Um, but it was in retrospect, um, I wanted to kind of reconstruct that poem, uh, knowing what we know about Jeffrey Dahmer now. And so that's my, my poem, you know, reconstructs that. 
and tries to kind of recall that memory, which was, as I said, really at the time meant almost nothing. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So the the passage that I'm I'm thinking of is one that I actually quote um, at the uh, in in the opening of this book of God of Nothingness, and it's from a novel by the Austrian uh, novelist Thomas Bernhardt, and it's from his novel Gargoyles. And in it, um, a father who is a doctor and his son are traveling through rural Austria where they're kind of encountering these different people and different characters and they're visiting the patients of the, of the doctor. Um, in, the, in the novel, the um, father's uh, wife, the, the protagonist, the son, his mother has died. And um, I'm going to read two short paragraphs from, from this novel, Gargoyles. The essential elements of a person, my father said, come to light only when we must regard him as lost to us, when everything he has done seems to have been a taking leave of us. Suddenly, the true nature of everything about him that was merely preparation for his ultimate death becomes truly visible. All through the drive through the Söding Valley, my father talked about my mother. His reveries centered on her, he said, rather than his dreams. Her presence often steadied and encouraged him during periods that seemed outwardly to be fully taken up by his medical work. As a result, he had been able to reach a clear view of death as a fact of nature. Now he understood her, who had lived beside him so many years and been loved but never understood. You were never truly together with the one you loved until the person in question was dead and actually inside you. Do you want to say anything else about why you chose that? I found that passage, you know, so profound, this idea of um, when a person dies that they they stop being in the world, but that they actually are, are now inside you, that you then contain them. And this was both comforting, a little chilling, um, but but quite revelatory. The first paragraph I uh, that I read, um, which seems to kind of talk about preparing for one's, you know, preparing for a death, or that that the death is a kind of um, a, a, a con- that our lives are a sort of series of of leave takings that we are always taking leave. That uh, paragraph is actually a kind of paraphrase. Um, of uh, one of Rilke's Duino elegies, um, where he writes about, it's a, in, in fact, the phrase that Bernard is using is actually quoting, it's echoing that of Rilke's about our life as being a, a, a moment of constant leave taking. Um, Rilke had this idea of death. He, you know, he writes about it in some of his, in a number of his poems that we sort of grow our death inside of us. But that death is a is a transformation, um, and that the dead don't actually miss us. Of course, you know we we miss them. Um, that the weight is all on us. That they are the ones who are liberated and move into this other into another realm where we are the ones who are are left behind. 
Um, and I, I, I really liked that idea of, of, um, you know, of leave taking as opposed to something, something more traumatic. Um, there's a kind of gentleness to it, but also an inevitability that it's something that we all have to go through. Can you share a passage that you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yes. So I'm I'm going to read a, um, it's a poem. It's, um, it's a prose poem that, um, lives in the book, uh, in this book and I'll read it first and then talk about it. It's, it's called once forgotten. The old woman kept the tulip bulbs in the basement to keep them from muskrats overwintered the geraniums in a barrel. She fed the water snake who lived in the boathouse flicking little stars of meat, which he rose up to catch his body black as the night's shadow. When we played down in the storm sewers and didn't come home, she walked through town and shouted into the grates, Tweety, are you down there? She didn't care. When she cleaned a carp, she kept the lucky stones from inside its head as a bingo chip, chopped the carp into chum. I bought her Chesterfields whenever she asked, and she smoked them in a blue fog in the kitchen, frying pan in the oven to keep the flavored grease. When she taught us to shoot, she took us to the dump so we could practice on unlucky rats. She taught us to clean sunfish and crappies and pike. When we needed a puppet, she sewed us a puppet. When we were sick, she fed us peppermint schnapps. The old woman kept a broken porcelain doll and a thick severed braid in the cedar chest at the foot of her twin bed, pure sentimentia. Shit or get off the pot, she'd say, when we played penny ante with ourselves. Her house by the river shook from the trains. The barge lights stroked the dark bedroom in the night. She made turkeys with pine cones and pipe cleaners, glued sequins onto styrofoam balls. Once she made kolaches, but never again. The pork roast was always smothered in kraut. And when she forgot, she forgot all of it, forgetting to eat, forgetting to dress, forgetting even where she was, waking up wet and cold on the floor. Me? She forgot me, too. Wind blew through the pines out on the sand prairie, and that was what she became. She forgot me, and I was forgettable. Once forgotten, I could walk away and be free. The thing that I, 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 I found myself kind of revisiting it and going over it uh, numerous times, and and um, because my my real concern about it was one of uh, of of you know the the dangers of of sentimentality, and I wanted to make sure that the poem you know wasn't sentimental. It's about my grandmother, um, and I think that sort of writing a poem about a grandparent is is kind of tricky in some ways. It's sort of seeped in nostalgia. You know, it can have that that effect. And so um, I, I also wanted to kind of capture the these these details that made up made up her life. Um, you know, at at the end of her life, she had um, dementia, um, Alzheimer's related dementia, and she really just forgot all of us. She forgot, you know, who I was. She forgot her, my father, her son, you know, and she just kind of faded away in a, in a lot of ways. And it was a, a terrible thing to, to watch. Um, but you know, as I think the poem, the poem tries to kind of capture is the, the sense of that as being 
being a kind of mixed experience um, that, you know, someone forgetting who you are also does, it does in a way, it, it, it sets you free or it can. Um, I, I wanted to, I didn't want to sort of name her. I didn't want to call her my grandmother. I refer to her as the old woman. Um, and that was something that kind of came later in the book because I, I, I felt like it was important to maintain a little distance, um, from her as well. This person who I loved so fiercely and who was so vivid in, in my life. Um, and, uh, it was also kind of tricky, I think in a prose poem to give it enough texture and structure so that, you know, um, one wouldn't be kind of lost in the, in the shapelessness of it. Um, prose is so liquid. It kind of occupies any vessel you pour it into. And I, when I'm reading poems, I really do long for, um, the, the kind of shapes and architecture that, that, you know, create some space around things so that they can really be seen and contemplated and heard. And I think prose doesn't always let that happen to that same degree. You don't get to employ the same tools, the same effects. Uh, and so I felt like in working on this poem that was as a kind of prose block, as a prose paragraph, I wanted to make sure that it had enough syntactical structure to, um, to, to give it those handholds to allow a reader to kind of move through it. It took quite a while for me to get it you know, get it in this state. And, and before I, before I was content with it, where do you write? I typically write in my house, um, in, in a study, um, which is upstairs, um, you know, in, in this house. Now the house I live in is, uh, is really old. It's about a 300 year old house. It was built by a Dutch farmer in the early 1700s. And, um, it's stone. Most of the house is stone. There are a lot of ghost stories that are attached to the house. Um, and, uh, and it's a place that, you know, feels like it kind of rose up out of the landscape itself. You know, it's actually made out of the, the stones that make up the, 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 the soil and the land around it. And so it feels like a kind of natural outgrowth of the, of the place. Um, but I, it's a, it's a place that I'm very much at home. And, um, and so I, I have a study where I have a great big, you know, um, bookshelf, like 16 feet tall bookshelf with a ladder and all of my poetry books are there in this sort of narrow, small, narrow room. So I'm sitting at a desk um, uh, that runs along the wall, and behind me is this sort of towering shelves full of poetry, and that sits behind me. And so when I'm writing, I could kind of reach back or climb the ladder and pull the book off the shelf, but it, it's become to me to be a kind of place where I, I think of as where poetry gets composed, where I'm sitting in this ancient house and behind me are all of the books that I've read and that I love and that I return to. And they're there sort of in back of me. They're there sort of backing me up and ready to be pulled forward and, and into a new poem. 
What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, that is, um, that is so, it's so easy to actually get, get away from writing. It's, it's harder, I think, to sort of enter into it. But I would say that, um, I have a great deal of energy for, you know, uh, domestic arrangements. And so, I spend a lot of time working on my, when you live in an old house, you're also constantly repairing it. Um, I spend a lot of time doing that. I have, um, I have, a, I garden, I keep bees, I have chickens. I spend a lot of time, you know, doing, doing that, um, being outside and working, um, I ride horses whenever I can. Um, I, I really, it, for me, it's really about being, you know, in the, being outside and being out in the world. Um, that gets me away from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a small group of poet friends who uh, sometimes see my work. Um, more recently, I have shown it to um, my partner who is a sculptor and also a writer, um, he's a very good reader and, um, and he's always a kind of receptive first audience. When I first read something to someone or show it to them, I'm not always looking for a critical response. I mostly, uh, you know, want some encouragement to kind of keep going. Um, I'm also really lucky that I have uh, a great editor at Grey Wolf Press, Jeff Schatz, who has helped me to shape my uh, last three books and who, um, who's an, uh, just an, an excellent critic and reader of, of my poems, and I'm just always grateful for his, for his attention. How have you dealt with rejection? It's such a part of being being a writer, and I think the thing I've come to remind myself of is, you know, um, rejection is just the the the, the flip side of um, of of wanting to be liked or accepted, right? Um, and and it's important, I think, to to um, when you do have readers who are receptive to your work, when you do have those um, people who who are who are eager to see your poems or who even you know write to you and say that they've read something that you you've written and they liked it or were moved by it. Um, it it's it's I you know I, I I remind myself of those occasions you know, of the great fortune that I have, um, in, in that I, I do have, um, you know, people who, who want to read and who appreciate my work. I think in terms of, um, you know, if we think of something like a negative review, um, first of all, in, in terms of poetry, if your work is being reviewed, you're, you're extremely lucky. Um, and so receiving critical attention of any kind is, uh, it, you know, I, I've come to see it as a kind of, um, uh, you know, I've, I've seen, I've come to see it as a, as a gift of someone's attention, you know, that they're, that they're devoting time and their intellect and, um, and effort to, to thinking about and reviewing your work, that they're giving you a kind of gift, a gift. I have received 
you know, positive reviews. I've received negative reviews and mixed reviews. You know, I think they're run the whole gambit. Only on two occasions did I think that a negative review of my work was actually wrong, you know, or that where I took issue with it because I felt they had gotten kind of personal. Um, but, um, or they were using my work to prove another point that they, you know, wanted to do. And and then I thought that didn't really have anything to do with me anyway. I, I think that um, whenever I have received a kind of a, a critical review of my work, almost always I've seen their point, you know, and, and I thought, well, you know, I guess I do, I, I do see their point. I see that as a, as, as a potential shortcoming of the work. I think that we write the best poems we're capable of writing. I hope I try to, I strive to write the best poem that I'm capable of writing at this moment in time. Um, you know, I try and bring everything that I have to bear on the poem that is right in front of me. And I try to make it as good as I possibly can. That's not always going to work. And so I think, you know, when I think of, uh, I, I remind myself of that, um, when, work has been received negatively or has been rejected. Um, I, I remind myself that, you know, this is my, I'm bringing my best effort forward and, you know, I'm lucky when I do manage to find a reader who, who likes it and who appreciates it. So it's good to remind yourself of that. And what is your favorite word? This is the hardest question. I think asking a poet what their favorite word is, it's like asking a parent who their favorite child is. <laughs> there's a, a way in which, you know, um, there's there's so many of them. Um, I was just having a conversation with a friend about what what that favorite word is. And um, and so today I'm going to go with the word bark. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing so candidly. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Mark Wonderlook, author of the poetry collection God of Nothingness. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Saeed Jones, whose poetry collection, Prelude to Bruise, includes very personal poems about his identity as a black gay man and include themes of power and race and also elements of mythology. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 280 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much every dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.